Hosea chapter 8 through 10. Hosea is continuing on with the solemn warning of judgment in view of Israel's unfaithfulness. Again, the parallel is Hosea married to Gomer, chapter 1, 2, and 3, and Israel married to Yahweh, uh, both of them unfaithful, and the reconciliation of the um, adulterated marriage. And so, in chapter 8, we went to in-depth exposition this morning. I'm not going to belabor it. We'll spend more time in the next few chapters. But um, the apostasy of Israel from God is given here, the departure of Israel from God. It is Israel that moved away from God. It's always important to note. And so here in the first seven verses, you have the sound of the alarm for judgment here. He says, set an alarm, or set, set the trumpet to your mouth. Uh, he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have uh, transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. And so again, the trumpets, if you go to the Old Testament uh, during the wilderness journey, and as uh, they were in Mount, Mount Sinai, uh, God gave all the different um, the rulings of the trumpets for feasts, for war, for retrieving from war, uh, for celebrations, for um, watchmen to blow the horn to warn about the enemy attack. And here spiritually, as we'll see, Hosea is the watchman as much as Ezekiel and every person who was called by God as a pastor, teacher to warn and to instruct and to encourage the people of God. Um, Jeremiah says, you are worthless shepherds, you, you're, you're worthless dogs, you don't even bark. <laughs> shepherds that don't, don't teach and they don't warn people and they want to be liked and they want to be thought of as good and all that. Um, uh, I mean, I don't think you need to go out of your way to offend people, that's not the purpose of the pulpit or a minister, but he's to be faithful to expound the word of God. And um, whatever God is dealing with and the context in which it should be expounded uh, as accurate as can be and as, um, as loving as it can be, but as stern as it is recorded regarding uh, whether it be warning or something else or sin. And so here again, um, they've transgressed the covenant. Um, God gave them the covenant there in Mount Sinai. Um, chapter 24 and 34, they, they went through it. They had all the specific details of the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, the tablets written on both sides with the finger of God, the hand of God over and over again through Exodus. And um, in, in Israel here, though she's idolatrous, in verse 2, she has the nerve hypocritically to say, Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Now they're, they're into idolatry, they're they, they, they're totally departed from God, but they still affiliate with God. They still say, well, I'm still a Christian. Now, I run to people like this all the time, and they come up to talk to me sometimes, and, and they're not even cavalier about it. They just say, yeah, you know, me and my girlfriend, we want to get married, and we were wondering if you guys would counsel us. I said, well, are you living with her? Yeah, yeah. I'm not. Like, it's, what, what Bible are you reading? What, what church do you come from? You know what I mean? And um, Christianity is being redefined. Uh, today, and the Christian and the church, and um, it, it doesn't line up with Scripture, and so Israel has rejected. Uh, or he says, "We know you." Now, remember, Jesus said in that day, "They'll say, Lord, Lord, and we not cast out demons in that." In Matthew seven, he says, "I never knew you." Right? And so we don't get in to heaven because of what we do or because God uses us. We get into heaven because we're living for Jesus Christ and He's changed our hearts and we. We're honoring him, right? 
we're saved by grace through faith. But if we are, then there's going to be that transformation and that evidence in our life. There's not going to be an inconsistency in terms of a, um, a habitual habit of life. There should be a drastic difference between your life now in Christ and before Christ uh, as night and day. And so very important. And so here in verse um, 3, he says, Israel has rejected the good, the enemy will pursue him. So God wanted to do good for them, as we said this morning, but, um, but Israel was so corrupt in a perversion that she thought that the goodness of God really was not too appealing and really it was just not that fun. And how many people have that kind of an attitude? You know, they figured, you know, time to get serious with God or go to church is when you're sick or old, ready to die. Um, that's the way I used to think in this new world. You know what I mean? And it's just the opposite. Uh, we need to know God and to walk with God every day of our life so we can grow old gracefully <laughs> and with some peace and some sanity our minds through our elevator at least goes to the third floor. You know what I mean? Um, it's important. And so... In verse 4, he says, They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. For their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. And so they took the reins of their own life. They set up the kings. I said 19 kings, as we've said. All of them bad. Uh, Jeroboam the first was the first one that... There in um, 1 Kings 13, where Ahijah the prophet prophesied that he would give him. Ten um, tribes, and God will bless him as David. He didn't trust the Lord. He uh, was afraid to lose the people. He set up the two uh, calf worships in Bethel, and Dan and Bethel, and uh, set priests of the, uh, uh, not a Levitical order, changed the, um, the months of the feast, so that they would not go back to Judah and give their allegiance to David. And uh, so he was on his own. And from then on, it was just their kings, and there was assassination after assassination. And it's just, the whole history was just horrible. And yet, God blessed them. God was patient. God blessed them with prosperity. And I think that that was the way, one, one way that God judged them, gave them the money. Because money without God will destroy you. Absolutely. No way for but about it. So... In verse 5 and 6, it says, uh, they made these idols, again, there at the end of 4, in the calf worship, and the calf is rejected of Samaria. Samaria is the capital city. Beautiful place there. We used to go there. We don't go there anymore. The Samaritans are there. Remember, they, the Samaritans really came from this, this whole captivity of Assyria. Assyria came in, and they would take the people of the north, and Assyria had a, a policy of, uh, of transpopulating people. So they take people, like if they came to Pasadena, they would take people from here and put them in Almani and take the people from Almani and put them down in Long Beach, take them Long Beach and put them up in Frisco. And they would, this way they would be far away from family, divide them, and they would be depressed and they wouldn't know a lot of people. So it would be harder for them to, um, to be up hoping to escape and they wouldn't have family ties, they would just give in. And they would marry strangers and lose their identity as a culture. Pretty good plan, huh? And that's where you get the Samaritans. Half Gentile, half Jew. From the Assyrian captivity. Alright? And so here, um, my anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? The rhetorical question is, 
has one answer. Never. He sees their heart. Judgment is coming. They just will not repent. They won't turn. For from Israel, for from Israel is even this, a workman made it and is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. So again, the, the, the practice of idolatry, taking uh, a wood, a precious stone or silver or gold and making some kind of image, uh, breaking the um, first and second commandment in Exodus uh, 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Um, as I said this morning, many of us are ex-Catholics. We understand what idolatry is. We have our virgins, our saints, our scapulars and everything else. And yet, how can you make a representation of an invisible God to a visible thing? God condemns that. And they say, well, you know, you're not really... Pre- I was a Catholic, so people can't snow me. I went to Catholic school in the early years. I, I was born in Mexico City. I, I've been all over the world. I've seen Catholicism to the bone. The Philippines, Mexico, Central, South America. Catholicism in America is a pussycat, defanged, declawed. Overseas, it's a lion. They will kill you. We were run out of Puebla back in the early 80s by the military, by the federales, because we're preaching down there. <laughs> and they call it federales, you better be careful. They can kill you right there. You don't have to give an explanation to anybody. It makes no difference. And so here, idolatry, God hates it. Verse 7. It says, and here's the key verse, they sowed the wind, they reap the whirlwind, the stalk has no bud, it shall never produce meal, it, if it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. So here's the key verse, the sowing is bad, in other words, when you sow, the farmer, it's an agricultural metaphor, and he uses many metaphors here, and everybody understood it, that when you sow as a farmer, you, you, you're sparingly with the seed, right? Because you want to make sure you get a good harvest, right? Knowing that not all is going to sprout. But this evil in the wind is vanity, emptiness. It's bad. It's the things that are not pleasing to God. And, and no matter how little you sow in the bad, you're going to get a harvest. It's just a reverse. It's contrary to the natural uh, product of harvest. When you put 10,000 seeds, maybe 2,000 will sprout. With the evil, you put one seed out, you're going to get a bumper crop. It's just the opposite. Okay? It chastens us. And so, a key, a key verse here. And even he confirms it by, uh, uh, if the meal did produce, if it just supposedly just did flower the stalk and then the corn, um, the meal, the wheat, then I would send aliens and they would take it away from you. In other words, I'm, I'm judging you. I'm keeping rain away, not letting the harvest um, come any longer. I did for a long time, now I'm drawing it back. And... Uh, Verse 8 down to 14, you have the um, alliances of Israel with the, um, the nations. He says, Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles. So they're mixed in. They're one with the Gentile world. They're, they're right at home. Like a vessel in which is no pleasure. So God has no pleasure in Israel now because she is, she is unequally yoked. She is one with the world completely. And yet she's still saying she's of God. Uh, for they have gone up um, to Assyria... Like a wild donkey, alone by itself, Ephraim has hired lovers. And so here the metaphor now of a donkey and he, you know, and it just goes his way and you're not going to stop him. And whoever sniffs her out, they're going to find her. Okay? And they're going to have their way with her. 
The same thing here. Um, Ephraim, as the head of the northern kingdom, or the whole nation, is, is, is trying to make um, friends with, um, with Assyria, um, and yet Assyria is her enemy. So as Netanyahu told our Congress, our enemy is not our friend. Simple. Interesting, Assyria, that's the whole region of Iraq and, and Iran out there. Okay, same thing. Okay, after Assyria, then came Persia, which is Iran, and Babylon, which is Iraq. Okay, it's the whole region there. And so here again, um, and while she's doing this, then she's going down to Egypt because she doesn't want to pay tribute to Assyria anymore. So she's trying to see if Egypt will help her out. And you find that in, in, um, in 1 Kings 15, uh, 19 and 17, 4, as, as he is playing both sides here in the kingdom. And so, uh, verse 10, and notice there uh, at, at, verse, at the end of verse 9, Ephraim has hired lovers. So she's playing the harlot, as we're going to see. She's into this whole idolatry, and she's bargaining with the nation. She's not trusting God. She's trying to be resourceful in herself. And in verse 10, she says, yes, even um, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of the princess. So in other words, it doesn't make any difference what they do. I'm going to judge them, and they're going to go into captivity. Okay? It's just a matter of time. And verse 11 says, Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. So they're, they're, they're enslaved to the sexual rights of this um, uh, idolatrous worship. They set altars up everywhere. And there's so many that, that they don't have to travel far. They don't have to be far, long away. They're all over and they're just enslaved to it. And the more altars they have, the more they sin against the Lord. Uh, we see this today in our nation in many different ways. The laws are very permissive today, uh, beginning with uh, indoctrination in school and public education, no morals, no ethics. Um, we see it into the entertainment. We see it into uh, um, even uh, the, the laws of the land, the way we're going, and uh, uh, television and whatever. You've got to be careful whatever you go, whatever you do. Today it is just so in your face. And yet here... Um, they, they did these altars just to perpetuate their sin. In verse 12, it says, I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered strange to him. The great things are the detailed things that he gave in the law, the Pentateuch and Mount Sinai. And not only the two tables of stone, but written from front and back, but all the laws, all the codification of the law in, in the Pentateuch. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that. And so here they, uh, they considered it a, a strange thing in, in verse 12, which indicates something foreign. In other words, um, God's word became unfamiliar and unattractive to the hearers of Israel, too restrictive. How we hear that today by many of the new, uh, quote, quote, emergent movement. Uh, whatever you want to call it, emerging, emergent, I could care less, call it whatever. Donald Duck, Daffy Duck, it's, just, it's not Christianity. And um, they, um, they, they try to culturalize and not offend people and try to be politically correct. And, and, and there's such, such rhetoric of deception within their quote-unquote dialogue. And yet, um, you know, they had become 
so far away removed from God that at one time the word was there. They were walking with God. These are the people of God. And now they're, they're far removed from him. It's, it's strange. Oh, that's, you know, that's not relative for today. That was for years ago when Moses did we, We've progressed. We, we've moved beyond. Yeah? <laughs> okay. Verse 13. He says, For the sacrifice of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, for the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. So all the sacrifices were an abomination to God. They were detestable. They, they, it was a stench to his nose. And they can go through it and deceive themselves, but God wasn't honoring it, and they would end up going to Egypt. Egypt reminds them of slavery, right? Now, Egypt is used in two different ways through the book. It's used of, uh, of Egypt of the past for their bondage, but also there's some double, uh, double interpretation where Egypt ultimately, some of Judah, because he deals with Judah, and we'll see this. Judah did go down to Egypt by Jonathan's hand, and um, Jeremiah records that, chapter 43, 4, and 5. As uh, Jonathan recovered the remnant that was there with the Gadaliah, and uh, he forced Jeremiah and Baruch after he had prophesied not to go, they still went. And, um, and Jeremiah told them that they were going to be judged, and God was going to send Nebuchadnezzar down there, and they were going to die. And so most likely Jeremiah probably died down in Egypt, but he didn't die in Jerusalem as God said he wouldn't, right? So all of us got to die sometime. But God kept his word to Jeremiah. And so... Um, verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon the cities and they shall devour his palaces. Here's the key. Verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker, the creator, the prosperity. They forgot God about it. God warned them about that in Deuteronomy 4.23, 6, 10 through 12 and other passages. When you go in the land, you have the barns, you have the vineyard, you have the cisterns, all these cities. You didn't work for them. I gave them to you. Don't forget me. Don't turn your back on me. Or I will destroy you and run you out of the land just like I did the ones before you. How many people I've seen in Christianity who God blesses, directs and all that and they forget about God? Almost like, you know... Uh, God was just a crutch. Forgotten. The root word means to cease, to care. To have no memory. Because they got away from the word. They got away from fellowship. They got away from sacrifice. They got away from repenting. They got away from dealing with sin. The word is used three times in Hosea. 4, 6, 13, 6 in here. And the way you do this, how you cease to care and to remember is... You no longer hang out with that person. You don't talk to them. And so that's how it happens. Now in chapter 9, you have the false confidence of Israel that will result in her destruction. And the sins of Israel is judged here. God now departs from Israel in this chapter. So 1 through 9, we have the joy of Israel uh, would be turned into gloom. The first two verses, the standard of Israel was not that of other nations. It was that of God, but yet they were rejoicing equal and par with the world. And so in verse 1 and 2 he says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. And so 
the nation is rebuked by God through Hosea here in verse 1. Her joy um, is over her own corruption of lifestyle, just like the other nations. They are charged of being spiritually unfaithful to Yahweh, playing the harlot. It's a key word in the book. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I, I, the Bible, you know, and people who don't believe in God or they're against Christianity, you know, it's a violent book. And, you know, they're talking about uh, sex and adultery and God wiping out kids and all that. I, I can't. Well, you think God is concerned about your objections? I don't think so. God gives to us a record of man and how horrible sin is. He gave us a record of what he intended for man and man blew it. And therefore, from that point on, man is very destructive. Man is very self-centered. And so he brings the heartaches on himself and others because of sin nature. Her spiritual unfaithfulness was carried out also in literal sexual rights higher of the threshing floor there in verse 1, as we've seen in these altars. Their false and deceptive security of prosperity would fail them, verse 2 says. No matter what they do, I'm going to take it away from you. I've already been judging you. The ultimate judgment is coming. The threshing floor of wheat and the wine, they were crediting to their false gods, to these altars, to Baal, to Ashtoreth. God would take it away. Shame should mark her feast, not joy. Shame. As you look today, and, um, and again, you know, we've come a long ways. When I grew up in the 60s, if a girl got pregnant, it was hush-hush and she was sent off to the uncles or something. And as you moved into the 70s, everything broke loose. And for... Young girls to have sex in the backseat of the car was no big deal. The 80s came along and everything started looking so much better, supposedly. We were sexually free and it was just wife swapping and living together. The 90s, it just rolled off our back like water off a duck's back. All the immorality. Our moral compass was gone, but we didn't know it. Into the 90s, parents would not object to their daughter bringing their boyfriend home and spending the night. Today, most parents say, well, my daughter's just a kid, but no, she didn't marry the guy. It's okay, it's better that way. And our whole society is rotten from within. So the progression of sin is always downward. Always downward. And yet here, shame should have marked their feasts. But they were boasting. So now today we're postmodern. The last half of last century was the fundamental against the modernist. Now it's postmodern. <laughs> and it just keeps changing. More progressive, more evil, more watered down. Verse 3 and 4, their captivity would prevent them from um, their feasts and sacrifice that God detested. It says, they shall not dwell in the land, in the Lord's land. Notice that underline that the Lord's land is my land. 
is my land. So anybody who's dealing with dividing the land, a plan for dividing Israel, is fighting against God. Read one chapter, Obadiah. Every leader, including American presidents, God help them if they try to divide that land. They're fighting against God. That's his land. He guards it day and night. He has watchers on the wall, the scripture says. They're his people. God will deal with Israel once again. We've seen that. The Lord's land. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt. Bondage. And shall eat unclean things in Assyria. So in other words, when they go to Assyria, they're going to they're gonna eat unclean food. Well, they're doing it now, but now they're going to be in bondage. God's not going to have any respect to them. He says, they shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. So why? Well, there's no temple over there. They're in bondage, right? They're in a pagan land. God's not going to honor anything. Not at all. He would move them from the land out. They would return to their bondage of Egypt. The same thing, slavery. Israel would eat defiled food. And Syria, their drink offerings would be unpleasing to God. None of that would God would receive. It would be like bread of mourners there in verse 4. Um, it says, it should be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat, it shall be defiled, and their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. So, it's like eating contaminated food, of mourning, of a funeral. God rejects any offering altogether. In verse you might find that in Numbers 19.22 and Deuteronomy 26.14 about the defilement of bread of mourning. In verse 5 and 6, we have the um, devastating reality that would strike them in captivity. In verse 5, he says, what will you do in the appointed day? It's a rhetorical question. Here's the answer. Ready? Nothing. Sowing to the wind, reaping the whirlwind. Oh, it's so fun. Then that boomerang comes back. Now it's not that much fun, is it? What are you going to do? Absolutely nothing you will be able to do. That's the whole point. And in the day of the feast of the Lord, they can't celebrate them. He won't accept them. Verse 6, For indeed they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. And so here again, their captivity was due, was, was due to everything having been destroyed when Assyria came in. Some would die in Egypt, be buried in Memphis. Again, Judah did go down there. Jeremiah 43, 44, and 45, the remnant of them. The overgrowth would hide their valuables of little figurines of silver. Thorns would overgrow 
all around their dwelling places. Everything would be abandoned. They would be in captivity. They would have no freedom. Verse 7 to 9, you have the awareness of the judgment of God that were very evident to them. Notice he says, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of, of your iniquity and, your, and the great enmity. Verse 7. The days of their punishment, the recompense. Assyria was already in the land. The words of the false prophets were proven to be untrue at this point. Israel knew the prophet was a fool and the spiritual man was insane or crazy. Now, Israel knew this was all due to the multiple of their sins and the hostility towards God there in verse 7. Now, there are some who interpret what the false prophets um, we're calling here the true prophets. In other words, um, that they are fools and crazy, that it was the false prophets calling the true prophets that. It's just not sure which way it goes. But um, the prophets who were false were the fools. They were crazy. And yet, Hosea, as we're going to see, he's the true watchman. False prophets are not true watchmen. They're deceivers. At this point, they see all the false prophecies. If you read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. The false prophets are over in Babylon with Ezekiel. And back and forth, it's going back and forth. The false prophets in Babylon are saying, Hey, you guys get ready. We're going to leave. We're going back. Jeremiah is saying, Hey, have families. Have babies. Have homes. You're going to be there for 70 years. Pray for the nation. Whoa. So when the false prophets hear about this over in Babylon, they send letters to the false prophets in Jerusalem. Say, shut Jeremiah's mouth. Kill him. And they go back and forth. Notice Hosea here. He says, the prophets are fools, the spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of their iniquity and the great enmity, hostility towards God. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God. He identifies himself as a true prophet. He's a true watchman. You see? So, in the previous verse, if it's the false prophets calling the true prophets that, they prove to be false. If it's describing the false prophets... It's true. Okay? I'll give you both. In verse 8 says, The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler snare in all his ways, enmity in the house of God. So in other words, the true watchman proclaims warning. Ezekiel 33, the watchman on the wall proclaiming. The false prophet they have been a snare. It's a, it's a trapping term where you make a trap for a bird to ensnare them or an animal. They have actually stumbled, deceived the people. Because what you do when you go trapping or hunting is you deceive 
that bird, right? You pick up that box, put a stick there, you put some seed there, and you're saying, look what I got for you. When you go fishing, you're deceiving, you're lying to the fish. You're saying, look, I got a worm for you, you really have a hook. These are the false prophets, okay? They deceive. Now, don't think we've gotten rid of these false prophets and teachers. They're all over the church today. One of the ways you know is they tell you they're a prophet. I usually ask the prophets, pick one of the doors in the back. There's no room for prophets here. <laughs> There's no such thing. Closest thing to a, um, a prophet is declaring the word of God from the pulpit. So preaching is one form of, of um, prophecy, uh, teaching. And certainly God can give us exhortation. But we don't speak as prophets adding to the scriptures. We don't speak inerrant and infallible. And a lot of times these people use those titles to claim some kind of authority over you. Or that you might think that they are more spiritual than you. And that you should cater to them and reverence them. And shut up. When I can see them stand on water, then I'll do that. Until then, he's just like me. No different. And so, verse 9, it says, They are deeply corrupted, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Now, the corruption of Israel is compared to the days of Gibeah. The key thing there is homosexuality, which God remembered and punished. Um, if you remember, this goes back to um, um, the book of Judges 19 and 20. And um, a Levite had left with his concubine after he had spent some time at the house of his father-in-law. She had run away, came back, and they were going to lodge. They went by uh, Jebus, Jerusalem, and he said, no, let's not stay there because that's the enemy, the Jebusite city, before it became the city of David. So they went on into Gibeah. And as they got there, there was nowhere to give them hospitality. A man came out from the field, and he told them, no, you can't stay in the street. He said, oh, it's okay. We just, no, no, you come to my house. And he provided for them and all that. And as they were there, the homosexual community came and banging on the door, demanding that he would turn over the Levite so they could abuse him sexually. He proposed that he would give them his virgin daughters, and instead they handed the concubine over. They abused her sexually all night and she crawled to the front door and was found dead in the morning. Well, what this Levite did is he cut her body up, put her on the donkey, took it home, cut it up in 12 pieces and sent it to the 12 tribes, a piece each. They were so incensed about it as they got the report of what happened that they all gathered together to go against Gibeah to destroy the tribe of Benjamin. Stood up for the homosexuals, and they went to war. And they almost annihilated the tribe of Benjamin. Only 600 men were left. You can read the rest of the story in Judges 19 through 21. This is what he's recalling. So even though we've been talking about sexual sin with the sexual rights, homosexuality here is the focus. Okay? Gibeah, very specific. And so... He would remember their sin. Verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree and the first 
season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the things they loved. And so verse 10, the 17, after the delight of God in Israel was turned to disgust here. And 10 through 14, the loyal um, early days of Israel with God were turned into unfaithfulness. Verse 10 here, God found Israel. God always initiates, not man. Like grapes, something refreshing in the wilderness, a common symbol of Israel. Isaiah 5, verse 1 through 7, the vineyard. And God says, I had you in, I watered you, I expected a good grace, but what else could I have done? Wild grapes. Now, if you're a predestination guy, a Calvinist, how do you explain that? When God says, I did everything I could. Israel wasn't corrupt, it's not my fault. Now, if God predestines everything by decree, then God should have predestined that, right? But he didn't. He says, I didn't do it. That didn't even come into my mind. The ultimate purposes of God and plans of God will never be thwarted by any person. You'll mess your life and the life of others, but you won't stop the purposes and plan of God. God's not up there biting his nails, worried about what you're going to do. He certainly wants you to make the right choices so he can direct and guide you. So he can bless you. But he's not afraid you're going to mess him up. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And so in Exodus 19:4 through 6, Deuteronomy 32:10, Jeremiah 2:22, Hosea 11:1, 1, you have the symbol um, of, um, uh, of grapes, the vineyard. Uh, you also hear the fathers of the first seasons for fig tree. Fig tree, again, is symbolic of, of Israel, another symbol. You find Isaiah 28, Jeremiah 24, Micah 7, 1. You have uh, Peter using it um, in, in Acts and others. You have Jesus using it in the Sermon on the, uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Um, when you see the fig tree bud, know the summer is not, even at the door. And so it's a very common symbol for Israel. Um, but Israel separated themselves to the sexual shame. They became abominable uh, like the things that they loved. You see? Um, if you hang out with people that are ungodly, you're going to become ungodly. Darkness has a strong pull on us. You still have sin nature. And you cannot be around and think that you will not be affected and contaminated or enticed or corrupted. You absolutely will. Ephraim would be humble. Look at verse 11. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when, listen, that they depart from him is one thing. But here's the kicker. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim means fruitful. It became unfruitful to play on words. Ephraim's glory would disappear like a bird flying away. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord, has departed. As in 1 Samuel 4, 21, when they took the ark. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord departing in Ezekiel 10, 18. Ephraim would reduce, be reduced in population. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. God's judging them. You remember back in Genesis, God plagued Abimelech. They didn't have children, right? When Abraham was in there, because he took his wife. 
Then Abraham prayed for him. God healed him. God is the one who gives children. He's the one that takes care of that. Look at verse 12. He says, though they bring up their children, I will bereave them. So, even if they start growing and they start developing, God's in judgment. God can take their life anywhere along that line of age. It's no big deal for God. Verse 13 says, just as I saw Ephraim, like Tyre, planted in the pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murder. Wow. In other words, the area there of Ephraim is beautiful. Up north is Tyre, a beautiful place. There was a seaside, commerce. And yet, here it says, instead of benefiting from what God had given them and the locality, all that would be coming upon them was the murder and the slaughter of their children. War is a horrible thing, ladies and gentlemen. Man is so vile. The things that are done in war, that's why so many men that go to war have a very difficult time living the rest of their life out because of the things they had to do. Bad enough the things you have to do in defense of the nation to try to stay alive. But worse when men become wicked in warfare. And they do atrocities way beyond what they need. And um, it shows the evil heart of man. It's amazing. You just read some of the accounts, the things that have happened, things that Hitler did, the things that went on in World War II, the things that went on in Vietnam, the things that gone when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's amazing. And so... Judgment was coming. Verse 14, he says, Give them, O Lord, what you will give. Or uh, give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. So once again, the judgment. He reduced them to population. Verse 15 to 17, you have the wickedness of Israel. Repeated, and it's kind of like a, 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 you know, a scratch record. But if God keeps repeating some warning all the way, he's hidden from different angles. So, in verse 15, he says, All their wickedness is in Gilgal. For there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Now, how many ways can you say it? The pagan shrines were there at Gilgal. The center of the school of the prophets under Elijah at one time. Now, the center of idolatry. You get it in 2 Kings 2, 1, 38. Hosea 4.15, 12.11. Amos deals with it in Amos 5.5. 5. This was the first place of worship after crossing the Jordan back in Joshua chapter 4, 19 through 20. That's where they were first circumcised. The reproach was rolled away from, the, from those that were, not, were born in the wilderness. The first Passover, the manna ceased there. God would no longer love them for their evil, drive them into captivity, rebellious leaders. The die was cast. Judgment is inevitable. They're dried up. God will kill their children. Look at 16. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of the womb. 
My God will cast them away. Here's a summary statement. Because they did not obey him. And they shall be wonders among the nations. Like Cain, refusing to repent, he was a wonder. He complained to God, it's more than I can bear. Wow. They would be wonders, first in Assyria, then Babylon. Because when Babylon conquered Assyria, they took all those ten tribes, took them to Babylon. So much for the lost tribes. There's no lost tribes, only the figment imagination of people. God knows who they are, but they don't even know who they are. Chapter 10, now you have the sin and captivity of Israel. Now is the departure of Israel from the land. That's the focus. Verse 1 through 8, the sins of Israel would result in their captivity. He says, Israel empties her vine. He brings forth fruit for himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars according to the bounty of his land. They have embellished his sacred pillars. So in other words, in verse 1 of chapter 10 there, once again the vineyard, the symbol of Israel, um, she had multiplied her sins, her sacred pillars. Um, she had become a luxurious vine, but for her self-service. Everything's all about her. Look to our society today. A lot of the young people, it's all about them. They have their own little following on Facebook and whatever. And, you know, they tweet and they, you can follow me. I don't want to follow you. Are you kidding me? Don't people have a life? Wow. We are so narcissistic. It's amazing we don't throw up all over ourselves. She multiplied her sinful altars, her pillars, rather than acknowledging God. She was a backslidden heifer, treacherous, sick, adulterous, silly dove, an empty vine. Hosea 4.16, Wow. These are God's words, not mine. The reason was a divided heart. Look at verse 2. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break their, uh, down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. A divided heart will make you unstable in all your ways. They didn't even want the best of both worlds at this point. They're completely lopsided. In verse 3, the words of the people acknowledge the judgment of God against the kings of Israel. Verse 3 says, for now they say, we have no king because we do not fear the Lord. So here's why we have no king. Judgment has come because we didn't fear the Lord. As for, the, for a king, what, what would he do for us? In other words, none of them ever benefited us because they didn't fear God. They made decisions based on their own benefit. It was one king after the other. So what, is, what good is it to have a king, right? So now after all those years, they see it looking backwards. Hindsight's always 100%. 2020. In verse 4, it says, They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment brings, springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. So in other words, in, in verse 4 here, they spoke falsely. They're making these covenants. We already shared about Assyria and then Egypt. They're playing back and forth. Uh, 2 Kings 17.4 will give you some of that. 
And the outcome was like hemlock, poison weeds. That's what was given to Socrates, by the way. Um, it would result in the destruction. It was, they, they, they were poisoning themselves, bringing judgment upon themselves. Amos says they had turned judgment into gall and righteousness into hemlock. Amos 6.12. So they had heard these words before. Look at 5. He says, the inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon really is Bethel, house of God. This is a house of wickedness. They corrupted it. For, the, for his people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because the glory has departed from it. So in verse 5, the calf of Bethel, the people are freaking out. They're being overcome. They're being conquered by the Assyrians. Why aren't our gods working? We've been faithful to them. Well, they're not gods at all. The priests are shrieking, howling like little girls. Their glory of their God have departed, removed. In verse 6, he says, The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. That's uh, the Assyrian king that is referred to here, Shalmaneser. And... Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. Once they're in captivity, once they're conquered, they'll look back. They'll remember the words of the prophet. They'll remember what they did. And what were we thinking? Now, God in his mercy, even at that point, if they repented, God would forgive them. But it's done deal. that They're still going to captivity, right? Can't get away from it. No matter what happens in your life or mine, you can always call upon God and He'll forgive you. But it doesn't mean that the consequences aren't going to come. Years ago, a young man who was raised in the church here started hanging around with the wrong crowd and he went to jail for murder for the rest of his life. He didn't do it, but he was part of it. Now he's forgiven, but... He's in jail for the rest of his life. And yet so often we want to blame God. God didn't do that. The decisions you make as a young person or a married person or whoever you are, who you hang out, where you go, what you do. I always told my kids, look right, look way down the road before you make that decision. Think about it. I tell that not to my grandkids. Think before you act. Before you commit yourself, look down the road. Verse 7 says, As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig in the water. Insignificant. Where there's a rain, you know, and it's pouring down, and a twig is dry, and it breaks off, and here it goes down the water into the drain. Carried away. A lightweight. The verdict of God, the gavel has hit. You're going into captivity. Verse 8 says also, the high place of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorns and thistles shall cover all its altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. These are the words that we hear also 
in the book of Revelation during the Great Tribulation. As men will not repent, you would think they would repent. The Bible says they don't repent of their fornications and their sorceries. But they ask the mountains to fall on them. Wow. Pretty amazing. Verse 9. He says, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There we go back again. There they stood. The battle of Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. So verse 9 again refers back to Gibeah. But the focus here is in terms of the battle. And how they stood against the evil of the homosexual community there. Almost caused the tribe of Benjamin. God would equally chasten Israel at this time when it is my desire. Look at verse 10. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. So two transgressions could be Bethel, Dan and Bethel, or it could be Assyria and Babylon. I give you both. We don't know. In verse 11, then says Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain. But I harness her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. So in other words, God here is saying both are going into captivity. The threshing floor, they love to plow. In other words, that cow or, or that ox, whatever, it threshes the corn. And they put a bag over his mouth. He can eat freely. He can take it out and free, eat freely. They love the victory. They love the, the, the luxury. They love the life of ease. But now, they're going to have to work. They're going to plow. They're going into captivity. And so verse 9 through 15, you have the sins of Israel. They would be punished. Absolutely. They would no longer live that lifestyle any longer. Verse 12. It says, Sow to yourself righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Here's another key verse. It's a call to repentance. The triple declaration, an invitation to sow righteousness, like a farmer sparing, sparingly casting out seed. Invitation to reap mercy, less than we deserve. And the instruction on how to do it, to break up your hollow ground. A farmer has to break up the dirt before he puts the soil in, right? The hollow ground is your heart. Key verse. Jeremiah says the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. The reason for it is time to seek the Lord through repentance. The purpose and plan of God was for God to forgive and bless till he comes and rains righteousness on you. He would bring them back after captivity. Absolutely. But it cost them. 114 years in Assyria and 70 in Babylon. Wow. Look at 13. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you trusted 
in your own way, in the multitude of your mighty men. Wow. People who trust in themselves, maybe they have money, maybe they know a lot of people, whatever it is, but it catches up with you. Um, don't think that this right here, that you know, you, 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 you've, uh, you've plowed wickedness, you, you reap uh, iniquity, uh, you've eaten fruit of lies, uh, you've trusted in your own ways, a multitude of mighty men. Don't think that's just for the world. He's talking to his people. This goes on among Christians, among pastors, among leaders. Don't, don't think it doesn't. Fungus among us. Everybody has that potential. And if you lose the fear of God, sooner or later, you might go there. Always remember that. Verse 14 says, Therefore, conclusion, summary statement of judgment, tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered. In other words, you can't hide in any strong city. And Shalman, Shalman is Shalmaneser, Plunders Beth-Avon, which is Bethel. But now it's the house of wickedness. In the day of battle. The battle of Gibeah, now the battle here. Battle for righteousness, right? Judgment, punishment. A mother dashes in pieces. A mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Can you think of anything more horrible than for a marching army to be ensuing and to marching into the cities of America? And going through neighborhoods, and they would just be bludgeoning moms next to their children and on their children and vice versa. You see, we have never had war in our land. We were very fortunate that during World War II, not one bomb was dropped here. Not that they weren't tried, but they didn't happen. But we have sown to the wind as a nation and we are reaping the whirlwind. Beginning with 9-11. But way before that. But that was a watershed for this nation. And the greatest judgment is coming from within. Not from without. Having killed 57 million babies since 1973, Roe vs. Wade. If we just take that, that crime, that would be enough. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, house of God. Because of your great wickedness, at dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. The triple balance is here, the same as the previous verse. Three things. They had plowed wickedness. They had reaped iniquity. They had eaten the fruit of lies. The reason is twofold. And it's given there. They had trusted in their own way. They had trusted in the multitude of their mighty men. And Shalmaneser, he um, imprisoned Hoshea in Assyria. Second Kings 17, 1 through 16. Even as it spoke there of... Um, Arbel is believed to be northern Galilee. He began in the northern part of Israel, Galilee area, and came down and worked his way to the north. The same would be done to Israel. 
So Shia was taken by Shalmaneser to Assyria in the early mornings, hours. Shalmaneser after that seized Samaria. And so God declares things before they happen. So when they happen, you know it's God. He calls Cyrus by name 150 years before his birth. God gave to Isaiah the method by which Babylon would be conquered through the levee gates deflecting the Euphrates River. Not an arrow was shot. In fact, there was a big party going on with Belshazzar boasting, not worried about the Persian army, Medo-Persian, because Babylon was impregnable. Now when God's in control, false security. Mm. Wow. America doesn't want to hear this. Our leaders don't want to hear this. I remember when 9-11 happened very vividly that all of our leaders were in Washington on the steps singing our national songs, crying, pleading out to God. That's 201. It's only 14 years ago. Where are they now? Now they're approving the sin of Gibeah and demanding that you and I accept it. I think we've crossed that line. I think it's the sin of Gibeah. God help us. Pray for our leaders. That God would be merciful. But we have sown to the wind. We are reaping. And we will reap the whirlwind. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Speak to our hearts. That we walk with you, Lord. That we not fear and proclaim your word lovingly, confidently, and boldly. Knowing that you sit in the heavens. And no one can say to you, what are you doing? So Lord, we look to you. We trust you for all things. Thank you for your word. What a comfort it is to us that nothing can oppose you, Lord. And that nothing happens by accident. And that we're right on schedule. So Lord, we thank you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet and um, you don't know the Lord. Then if you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then the Bible says you can call upon his name and he will forgive you and save you and transform your life. It's not based on who you are, what you've done or how good you are. It all depends whether you believe that he died in your place for all your sins. And if you see yourself as a sinner under the wrath of God, then you can call upon the name of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everybody qualifies. All are sinners. He died for the ungodly, 
I presume you qualify. So if you want to be born again, accept him. I know that your sins are forgiven and that you he will give eternal life right now. This is your prayer to him, not to us, but to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.